Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Jude Morrow. Based in Ireland, Jude is an autism self-advocate, TEDx speaker, and author. He is also the founder of Neurodiversity Training International, an autism mentoring, training, consultancy, and motivational platform. NTI works with nonprofit and Fortune 500 companies using a strengths-based approach to change perceptions and attitudes. Jude's first book, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad, was published in 2020, and his second book, Loving Your Place on the Spectrum, is scheduled to be released in September of 2021. In this conversation, we discuss autism awareness and acceptance in Ireland, what it was like for Jude to grow up feeling that something was wrong with him, why society should move away from the medical model and embrace the neurodiversity movement, the problem with labels of disorders and disabilities, consultation services offered at NTI, and advice for anyone interested in being an ally of the neurodiversity movement. In this episode, discover what's possible when autism is not viewed as just a broken version of normal. To learn more about Jude and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, Please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Jude Morrow. Hi, Jude. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. No, no, thank you for inviting me to come along. Uh, really glad to be here. Really be glad to be uh, here speaking with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? My name's Jude Morrow and I carve heroes for autistic people, children, young and old. I am autistic myself and through my training and consultancy, I like to show that autistic people like me can grow up and live happy and successful lives I've written a book that was published by Beyond Words, the publisher of The Secret. Why does Daddy always look so sad? That's what I suppose became my uh, my entrance to the stage. They're publishing my second book on the 14th of September, uh, Loving Your Place in the Spectrum. And I tour the world speaking and training uh, with schools, uh, startup businesses, even Fortune 500 companies on the benefits of autistic talent, neurodiversity, and moving away from a deficits-based model. And my vehicle for that is Neurodiversity Training International. And we are the world's largest and fastest growing autistic-led movement. So that is the the vehicle and a brief background on me. (laughs) Thank you. Well, let's first start with talking about the level of autism awareness and acceptance where you are. And you're from Ireland, right? Derry, Ireland. So what's the current understanding of autism in Ireland and how has this changed over the past decade or so? 
Well, I think Ireland is much more progressive, I think, than a lot of other places, which is good, which is somewhat of an advantage. Uh, given the, the global reach that we have with Neurodiversity Training International, it's it's a good measurement as to how progressive uh, other countries are, because even with the demographic, the vast majority of people here in Ireland tend to be conservative Catholics. And with the new kind of concept of neurodiversity, it's been adopted somewhat here, which is a positive, but still a lot of people are very much dependent on the deficits and negative medical model-based organizations for their advice, guidance, and inspiration. Because, I mean, my parents went on a similar journey to this the journey a lot of your listeners will have been on, is I received a diagnosis quite young in life. I'm 30 now. And they went to like a training course or a half-day free workshop and left feeling more afraid than they did when they went in. So... Where, where are places in the awareness and acceptance spaces is that when treated properly, there's a lot of positives about autism. Um, it can be a gift to be shared, not a burden to be pitied. So here it's pretty good. I think on the whole of it, there's a lot of interest and a lot of uptake in our programs here for our strengths-based approach. But like everywhere in the world, we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of support are available to families from the point of diagnosis? To be honest, not an awful lot, uh, because a lot of people hinge their hopes and beliefs on a diagnosis being somehow the keys to the kingdom. Here with the, the, the NHS, which is the, the public health care system, support is often sought out by parents. And one chunk of value I always give, whether that's on stage at a public speaking event or on podcasts or even during training that I do, that I deliver, I always say that parents need to be proactive because if parents are proactive in seeking support, they're more likely to get it, whether that's in the form of local support groups because the their kids will meet more kids like them and they'll meet more parents in the same position. So I always say peer-to-peer support is the most positive method of support that you can possibly get. Before getting into the advocacy, book writing, speaking kind of circles, I was a social worker for a long time. I know quite a, quite a peculiar job choice for an autistic person, according to the stereotypes. And I always found that a peer-to-peer support has always been very useful, even looking at 12-step programs for addicts, whether that's Alcoholics Anonymous or anything else, is that people get support and guidance from those who are in the, the same or similar position to what they're in, and it, it has maximum impact. And that that's why I think, you know, with me and NTI, we've had so much impact because for us, we've been there, we've done it. We've walked the walk and talked the talk and made the mistakes so people don't really have to. Hmm. And I can imagine that for people who are seeking support, receiving it from someone who they feel like they can really relate to and who relates to them can bring that sense of validation and willingness to be maybe even more open and vulnerable with them. Yeah. And uh... A lot of parents hinge their hopes on a diagnosis. Now, I'm not anti-diagnosis in any way. And I know that autism on the whole is often used as a synonym for intellectual disabilities. 
And uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the vast majority of autistic people are not intellectually disabled at all. But whenever it comes to support, a lot of parents do hold on to the fact that there will be additional support and guidance and everything else. And a lot of the time, it's just not the case. Because here where I live, the waiting list for an assessment is 18 months. Now, I know that a lot of people will need assessments and diagnoses for things like housing or welfare support and various other things. So I'm not anti-diagnosis in any way, but a lot of schools seek diagnosis for children in the belief that it will somehow get kids more support or make teachers that little bit more tolerant and accepting of children that have different learning styles and different communication methods. A diagnosis just doesn't work like that. And I would always say that whether it's for teachers or parents is to develop that understanding first rather than thinking that somebody is going to provide it for you. Mm-hmm. Got it. Let's talk about your childhood. So you did receive a diagnosis, you said, right? When you were two? Yes. Well, whenever I was young, whenever I was very young, it was clear that I wasn't quite like my older sister, Emily. I, mean, I, I came from a pretty standard Irish Catholic nuclear family one mother, one father, one older sister, Emily, who's a few years older than me, one dog and one picket white fence. <laughs> and my older sister was always the, the yardstick as to my developmental milestones, so to speak, because I didn't really walk until I was two and didn't really speak or communicate like this until I was maybe nearly seven. So uh, it's been a bit of a transformation between then and now because nobody can get me to sit down or shut up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, It's been a bit of a transformation for sure. And my real joy in life was lining my toy cars up on the windowsill of my parents' house. And I didn't really like to mix with other children. Uh, I I suppose that stayed with me. Uh, I, don't really, I don't really like to mix with a lot of people uh, even now. but. In the mid-90s, whenever I was growing up, autism wasn't a word that was really talked about. It wasn't a concept that was really in the mainstream eye or ear or view at all. So I went to mainstream school. It was clear that I did have the intellect. And I, I went to mainstream school. I didn't go to special education school. I did go to a special needs kind of nursery or kindergarten before I went to mainstream school. But at Mainstream, I did have a classroom assistant and didn't go to school every day and did have some of those supports in place. But as a child, it was, once there was a lot of happy memories and happy moments and a lot of things that I loved, I became acutely aware that I was somebody that wasn't socially acceptable to everybody else because the onus was always on me to change that lining my cars up and stacking things up was was a wrong way to play. And I had to change. Then whenever I used to whisper things under my breath to communicate and almost practice interactions, that was per communication skills. And I was the one that had to change. Then as far as playing games with more than two players, it wasn't really my bag, it wasn't my jive, didn't really take to it. The same way I don't really know. 
and that was deemed per social skills. Again, whatever they are. And it was always me that had to do all the changing. And sadly, even in 2021, the year that we're in now, that still happens. Is that a lot of people, now don't get me wrong, will say what their heart's in the right place. That, oh, these autistic children need to fit in to survive and not get bullied and everything else. And it's it's just not true. It's just not the right attitude to take. Because for me, I would say that all my teachers and classroom assistants had their hearts in the right place for me. But at the end of the day, the onus was always on me to change. And that existed right the way through my my school journey from kind of my nursery schools to mainstream primary school, elementary school, and then uh, secondary school. Then after that, the onus is always on us to change. That's why I now want to say that attitudes and perceptions need to change, not us. So it wasn't an easy journey. And I did grow up, I suppose, harboring a lot of scars from childhood that really affected me as a grown man. And that involved going on another journey of its own. How did you finally come to accept your autism? Believe it or not, autistic people like me can also have families. And my son was born on the 23rd of July, 2013. Oh dear, it's not long until he's eight now. I, I, I mean, cliches are cliches for a reason. I mean, where did that time go? I've just taken a, a side thought there. Wow, it's just gone in so quickly. <laughs> and I was very underprepared for parenthood, very underprepared. I developed coping mechanisms as a child and teenager that were centered upon a reliance on routine, a reliance on structure. And entering the parenting journey would have caused that to become cattywampus. So the only coping mechanism that I had started to fail. And I had a lot of fears and worries. Would Ethan have the same journey as I've had, you know, being singled out in school and being the child that everybody wants to fix all the time. And when Ethan was born, it became clear early on that Ethan's not like me. He's he's not autistic. So he was able to walk and talk before he was one. And even now, he's a Hollywood sweetheart. He loves the media. He loves being photographed and interviewed. And whenever Ethan and I were kind of growing up together on the, on this journey after he was born... He noticed that I wasn't coping with things very well, that I didn't like change. And eventually it led Ethan to ask my my my, my mother, his grandmother, why does daddy always look so sad? And I suppose that was the cheesy motivational speaker moment that I needed to come to terms and go on a journey of my own. And that's formed the, the whole story of my first book, which was Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? It's that therapeutic journey and story of being a a brash and non-accepting teenager to proud autistic man. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that was the kind of compressed uh, outline that I needed to go on. I needed to come to terms with it eventually so that I could eventually have a better relationship with my son and my wider family. What have you learned about yourself from being a parent? I have learned that I have learned that little children will always push boundaries, mm-hmm. that they will always want ice cream for breakfast, they'll always <laughs> want electrical appliances, uh, games, tablets, consoles very early in the morning. And with Ethan, Ethan knows that I'm not like him, and he 
in his own wonderful childlike way, he knows how to cause me minor irritations because he knows I have a lot of buttons and Ethan has a lot of little fingers. So <laughs> it's been it's it, it's been a really fun journey so far. And with Ethan, because Ethan's so socially outgoing, whereas I'm not, and it's it's a choice for me. It's not because I can't socialize. I, I often choose not to, except if I'm in the company of people that I know and trust and love very dearly. But whenever Ethan and I had book signings and everything before COVID and any conference invites and anything like that, is that Ethan was almost like my my chaperone, which is odd because whenever the Queen has public engagements, there's normally someone with her in white gloves to say, this is the Queen. But, and Ethan does that for me. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, he's, only, and he's only seven. Uh, I was only six and five at the time, where he he does that for me, um, yeah. which is which is quite nice. But uh, yeah, we've uh, we've been on a, a bit of a, a, a crazy ride the last the last couple of years, anyway. Mm. So, what are some unique challenges you face as an autistic parent? I don't know if I really have any challenges, so to speak, simply because I'm autistic. I'm a parent like any other. And I suppose I've had to adapt. It was it was a hard journey to adapt because I can only speak from a, a, a personal point of view is that I'm someone who likes to have a life plan, the five-year plan. And I suppose whenever Ethan was on his way, that I suppose it, it stopped the plan somewhat because uh, I, of course, didn't plan to uh, have any children, uh, especially so early in life. And that was obviously a challenge for me to kind of move past the five-year plan that I had in my head. But uh, I have to say that since Ethan has come along, uh, the five-year plan, including him, is much better than the original one uh, (laughs) that I had. And Ethan knows what areas I like and what I don't like. Whenever he was very young, he loves children's play parks, and they're always a sensory hellish breeding ground for me of noise and crying and shoes squeaking and just chaos for me and Ethan um, has always been quite empathetic if he knows I'm not happy there if I'm sitting on a bench he would have came over and says do you want to go home now <laughs> sometimes I'd be like oh okay but I think now the, the the challenges are getting less and less because Ethan knows what I like and what I don't like and I suppose understands it a little bit more. So um, I'm enjoying the nice, peaceful few years before he becomes a teenager, and then he really starts to push the boundaries. <laughs> so what do you want people to take away from reading your book? I'd like people to take away that being autistic is fine, that being autistic can be the cornerstone of people's success. And in the UK, Ireland, and Europe... A privatized for-profit medical care system isn't the primary source, whereas in, in North America it certainly would be. And I think that there's a lot of fear and misinformation and sadness propagated by private and air quotes I'm using for these therapy and treatment centers that only seek to profit from the fear of parents. And I want people to take away that whenever passions and talents are nurtured, in autistic children, wonderful things happen. Because I always say, 
is if Albert Einstein was born today, if Albert Einstein was born at the time of this recording, which is the 11th of May, 2021, is if Einstein was born today, we wouldn't have any relativity because some well-meaning doctor would probably say, oh, little Albert is constantly worrying about space and time and the nature of reality. He needs to stop doing that. He needs to go to this air quotes therapy center at a massive cost to your insurance. Hmm. And I think any therapies and supports that seek to make your autistic children indistinguishable from their peers or feel like a broken version of normal should never, ever, ever be considered nurturing passions and talents should always be the first order of the day and a common retort that I would get to that would be that you know some children have additional needs and support needs and so on and that's fair that's understandable but no matter where somebody lies in the cognitive sphere I find is that everybody has talents strengths things that they're good at and and most importantly feelings as well So no matter where somebody is ability-wise, that everybody has strengths and everybody has different talents, challenges, preferences, and things that they don't like. So that's what I want people to take away from any of my uh, books and writings and live stuff, is that whenever the kind of seeds of passion and talent within children are watered, nurtured, incubated, wonderful things happen. What are some of your strengths related to autism? One thing that I I was always very good at was reading. I've always been an avid reader. Um, Whenever I was young, and I I love telling this story, uh, I I, I gave the same story in my my TED Talk as well, was whenever I was nine, this was around the time the Harry Potter books were coming out, and we were reading them together as a class, and I, I was always first to put my hand up to volunteer to read to everybody. And my, my teacher had the best idea in the whole world then. And it was to put me forward to be the narrator of our school play that year. And I remember standing on the stage and saying my mum and dad, so proud of me there. And that, that I, I look back at it and say that was my first speaking gig. <laughs> Without that experience... I wouldn't be speaking to you now. I wouldn't have turned the world as a motivational speaker. I wouldn't have done a TED Talk. I wouldn't have written any books. I wouldn't have uh, scaled and grown my own neurodiversity training and education empire. I wouldn't have done any of those things. So that was the first real kind of experience of my gift and passion being nurtured and a good thing happening from it. Mm -hmm. Very interestingly, another good strength I believe autistic people have is that of problem solving. I have been pretty active on on the social media clubhouse recently, and I hosted a room with she was an associate professor of psychology and had done a lot of research and work with uh, Nobel laureates, many of whom have been autistic or uh, whether that's a confirmed diagnosis or they believe themselves to be. And a lot of research wanted to know, you know, how do people get to, you know, the pinnacle of human talent, which is to be the recipient of a Nobel Prize. And the number one trait or characteristic that they had was that they were phenomenal problem solvers. And 
I think with that, that's where I believe I shine as well, is that a lot of people would view the wonderful autistic brain as flawed and, and needing fixed and, you know, being too logical and too black and white and all of those outdated notions. But the ability to problem solve has been universally there among autistic people, mm-hmm. even with very small children and adults. It's just a number one key thing. And it's definitely been an advantage to me and can be an advantage to everybody else if they allow it. Does this show up like in little everyday tasks or bigger things if you're on a working on a project? It shows up in, in, a, in a lot of different things for me, where it can be household things, because what one of my definite weaknesses, I will say, is building flat pack furniture. I hate it. I'm no good at it. It's hard for me to pay attention to it. It's hard for me to read it and follow through with it. It's just a real pain. But no matter what, I think the, the problem-solving and logical side of my brain and the brains of other people can show up all the time. The same thought patterns is instead of focusing on problems, I, I, I admit that sometimes, like every human being, I can be consumed and worrying about the problem. But I very much have a, a mantra of, you know, who, not what. I mean, who can help me with this? is that I'm certainly not afraid to ask for guidance or for help or to delegate things to people. And that certainly works for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know that a lot of autistic people can be very direct. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is one of the strengths also, that there's less worry of what people will think of you if you ask them for something for help. So it kind of frees up people to be more efficient in a way it absolutely does and I, I that's why I love communicating with fellow autistic people because we can be direct with each other and understanding of each other and really jive off one another's communication style because kind of navigating the the treacle filled world of neurotypical communication is that there's a lot of kind of vague, you know, not easy to see whether they're spoken instructions or written instructions is that I'm the type of person that I don't really dance around a problem. I can say, you know, I need help with this, 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 and this. So who can help me with each of those things? And I can say that person, that person, that person, that person, that person. And then it's a case of, okay, let's reach out to them. Let's talk to them. Let's tell them what I want. And then if I'm happy enough, then that's it. I mean, <laughs> it's always nice to work with fellow autistic people. It always has been for me. It's always a pleasure. Now, I know it's it's not it's not too common, although with my trainers and stuff, we're all uh, neurodivergent or autistic. And we, we our meetings are always reasonably short because uh, <laughs> it's uh, just a case of uh, pretty much a Q&A, some short updates, and then we kind of go from there. So it's uh, it's always good to be in company of people who understand you. And I, I want to kind of broaden that company for people on a global basis through mm-hmm. giving people a different mindset and a new perspective toward us. Yeah, let's talk about the neurodiversity movement. First, for our listeners, could you explain what neurodiversity means? You've kind of touched on it a little bit. What does it mean to you? Neurodiversity is a new uh, progressive way to view those of us 
who are different. Neurodiversity is mainly captured by the autistic community, but it does capture a lot of things, whether that's dyslexia, ADHD, and a range of other neurotypes. And that it's okay to be different. The neurodiversity movement is one that really goes forward to seek acceptance and understanding rather than just simply awareness. Neurodiversity would denote that we are our own diversity group rather than patients or people that need to be cured or fixed in any way. And under the definition of neurodiversity, it doesn't show or highlight anybody as having any disorders or diseases or that they're a broken version of normal, is that the way you are is perfectly fine. And with the kinder mindset toward you, you will thrive and excel in life. Mm-hmm. So that's a broad overview of neurodiversity. And with neurodiversity, it very much promotes that people have an identity, not a disease. For me, I speak mainly about autism and being autistic. It's because it's my identity and the one I I know most because it's the life I live. And with neurodiversity and autism, it shows that being autistic is an identity and an identity that a lot of people with the right attitude and tools can be proud of. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that there are some autistic people who do need help. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they, when they're young, they need some extra support with daily living skills, for example, right? So would they still fall under this neurodiversity label, I guess, of not having a disorder? Uh, uh, absolutely. And again, this is more kind of labeled at the, the, the North American audience. Now, I would be the first to say that the neurodiversity movement in a lot of spheres has been hijacked. And it's been hijacked by a lot of whether that's autistic or neurodivergent people who have basically said, just accept us how we are, and that's it. I mean, no help, no support, no nothing. And to me, that's not the way. And I don't want, especially with NTI, you know, the movement I lead, to become uh, somewhat of a hate group or excludes those that do have additional support needs because there are those that do have additional needs, uh, whether that's underlying conditions as well, whether that is mental health, intellectually or physically, uh, that do need uh, additional support and guidance. But the, the main aspect of the neurodiversity movement is that everybody has strengths and everybody has an identity and people should be that little bit more understanding. Even trying to key in the example that, that you gave is that Let's take it, first of all, from the traditional point of view that it's existed for decades. So let's say, for example, there is a child who dresses themselves and brushes their teeth and showers a little bit differently. Okay. now somewhere somebody would have put down like a list of guidelines that is the air quotes, the normal way to carry out your morning routine. And any deviation from that would mean that someone's disordered, needs to go through five or six doctors, 20 evaluations, and at least five figures on their insurance policy to get the diagnosis. Wherein what neurodiversity teaches, preaches, and passes on to the world is that people can have different ways of achieving the same outcome, and that should be accepted and respected. With those who have different needs, It is true, and it's fair to say that 
there are going to be children that do need additional support and guidance and help. Now, I personally am saying that that is something that should be appreciated and, and accepted, that there are going to be children that do need more support because a lot of neurodiversity splinter groups and even some of the more mainstream ones are basically saying, oh, we, we don't need any support. We just need accepted for who we are and that's just the end of it. For me, whilst that is very noble and very admirable at face value, from a societal point of view, it, it doesn't really work. There are going to be people that do need support. There are going to be people that perhaps will not live independent lives and will live as independently as perhaps I have. Mm. And at the same time, what neurodiversity does teach and what we teach at NTI is no matter where someone is ability-wise and capability-wise, everyone has strengths talents and feelings that no matter what strengths can be played to and that their identity should be respected and if any support needs to be gathered or implemented then that is absolutely fine as well that people can choose to have their own support but overall the theme is is that people should be accepted for who they are not put through potentially harmful therapy programs to fix or amend them in any way Mm -hmm. yeah i understand that So maybe I'm just getting caught up in the semantics of things, but would you say then that under the neurodiversity movement, there's no such thing as disorder if everyone is on a spectrum of diversity, like even including bipolar disorder, like these kinds of traditional labels under the DSM? Well, with neurodiversity... um... Absolutely, there is the the, the word disorder. Uh, certainly, is is not under the ideology of myself, NTI, or uh, the neurodiversity movement as a whole. Because the question I always ask back is, I mean, the acronym ASD, the uh, the one that's always used to describe an autistic person, uh, autistic spectrum disorder, the acronym. But I've asked. On global stages, at conferences, in my books, I've asked in my social medias, everywhere, at my training and motivational events, I always ask, disordered compared to who? I mean, what is the benchmark? I mean, the word disorder is uh, but not only being an oppressive word, but let's do a deep dive into this concept of disorder. So who gets to decide who's disordered? And that is the vast majority of the population. And that that happens with every single form of diversity. It's why there is a lot of systemic racism, because the vast majority of people are white. It's why there is oppression for autistic and neurodivergent people, is because the vast majority of people are neurotypical. And that's why there is a lot of inequalities when it comes to women and girls in a lot of spheres, whether that's the workplace or uh, medical treatment, because the vast majority of decision makers in these fields are white men. So uh, with a lot of kind of oppressed groups, it's the majority of people that are oppressing them. Now, neurodiversity is a little bit different in that a lot of the majority of people believe that they have their hearts in the right place and saying, no, but we can help you socialize and we can help you behave and we can help you be normal. And people think that that's a very, you know, that's a very noble heart and a very noble mindset to have. But what the neurodiversity movement is saying in return is, can our gifts and talents not be appreciated 
rather than constantly having our deficits highlighted in comparison to our peers. And, you know, the word disorder and the DSM and everything like that is, you know, whilst it does kind of medically have a purpose, you know, for for autism, it doesn't really make a difference. Like with the neurodiversity movement, our, I suppose, one of our solidarity partners would be the LGBTQIA plus community. And you don't need a diagnosis to be gay. You don't need a diagnosis of being trans. And at the same time, with autistic people, if it's true for you, then it's true. Because in all my travels, I've never met anyone who has believed their child or themselves to be autistic and been wrong. (laughs) So in that way, if it's true for you, if it's true for your children, and a lot of groups and services and supports don't rely totally on having a diagnosis to join them because everybody's in the same position. So I would urge everybody to kind of do that, to reach out to your local groups, your services, especially autistic self-advocacy spheres and groups and projects so that your kids can grow up feeling proud and confident in who they are and for you to meet other parents like you. That's a really interesting analogy to the LGBTQ community. Never thought about that. Would you say that there is any harm, though, in people self-diagnosing and it potentially being wrong? I have never met anyone who's believed themselves to be autistic and been wrong. The, likewise, the, with, uh, there has been very few people that have believed themselves to be gay or trans and been wrong. Now, I suppose there's many people who believe themselves to be straight and been wrong, <laughs> but uh, the identity has always been been still there. And for me, self-diagnosis is, is perfectly valid. And uh, I mean, because the vast majority of autistic and neurodivergent people do not need support. And the only kind of use a diagnosis will yield for you is if you are looking for welfare or housing, especially if there is underlying health concerns and underneath that, you know, the the, the, the being autistic, the identity part is overshadowed by different things. So uh, self-diagnosis and self-confirming your identity, if it's true for you, then for me, it's perfectly valid because my parents weren't wrong about me. And a lot of parents, and I I mean, I always ask as well on stage, I always say, so how many of you believed your children to be autistic before they were diagnosed? And every hand goes up in the air. And then I say, now, if you believed your child to be autistic and they weren't, can you put your hand down? And all the hands stay up. I mean, and then I say, well, can you keep your hand in the air if you, you knew your child was autistic already? You know, and it's the same thing. Like anybody you know who is autistic or parents or advocates or allies, and you ask them, even before someone with 20 letters after their name and a five-figure price tag told you what you already knew, were you certain that your child was autistic? They'll always say, yeah. Hmm. This is what a diagnosis looks like. Okay, Let, let's do like a minor kind of role play. Okay. Now, okay, so you're a parent and you've jumped through all the hoops. You've seen five uh, people like educational psychologists, OT, various other people. Um, it doesn't matter because your insurance will have paid for them anyway, especially if you're, you're in, the, in the US. So this is what a diagnosis looks like. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Uh, having read the reports and after listening to what you've said, yes, your child is autistic. 
bye. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I mean, that that's what it looks like. Like people think a diagnosis will look like this. Okay. Now, uh, yes, your child is autistic. So I will now proceed to uh, stop your child being autistic in some way. Uh, although I suppose that does happen with a lot of like harmful therapy and treatment practices that autistic advocates are speaking out against. That's one strand of it. And then another idea is here is all the coping skills for you to manage and cope as a parent. Please take them all. It doesn't work that way. That's why I always say no matter where you are in the world, parents need to be proactive at all stages. Got it. Okay, here's another word to dissect. Ooh. (laughs) Disability. So we've talked about, you know, the movement away from the medical model. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a distinction with the social model. Could you talk a little bit about that and how disability is viewed in the two spheres? Okay. Well, whenever it comes to autism, a lot of people believe that there's two points, okay, where there's uh, high-functioning autistic on one end and then low-functioning autistic at the other end, and you're just somewhere in between where it doesn't work like that. I mean, functioning labels only do one thing, and that is assess the impact of somebody on the others around them, not the actual experience that they live. Because although I was often stuck with the label of uh, high-functioning autism, is that there were a lot of times in my life where I didn't function very highly and a lot of times where I did feel a lot of inner turmoil and a lot of time that I did struggle with my mental health and lack of self-belief and other various things tied on top of, of that as well. So I think that functioning labels don't really work. This is a good way to look at it, is that you know being autistic is an identity, okay? It's not a disability. You can be severely autistic in the same way that one can be severely left-handed. Again, leaning on the LGBTQIA plus community is that there's no severities of sexuality. And whilst in in years gone by, I mean, homosexuality in particular was was legislated in, uh, in law as illegal. Um, although it's it's not anymore. Sadly, in some countries, it still is. But at one stage, it was viewed almost it was not only a disability or an error of thought or judgment, but it was also viewed as a crime. Although being autistic or neurodivergent has never been a crime, it has still been labelled in the same kind of disorder or disability category as various other things. So, really, what what I want people to take away is that. Autism is not a learning disability. It's not an intellectual disability as much as the kind of marketing and propaganda that parents sadly do swallow on a daily basis will have you believe that being autistic is a disability. It's not. In this, it's just an alternative way of viewing, experiencing and interacting with the world in the same way people can be left-handed. People can do things naturally in a different way. And that's okay as long as it's accepted. So the distinction is that the disability comes from the environment, right? Like the environment not allowing people to live a quality of life to their capabilities. Yeah. Would absolutely. that be right to say that it's it's not on the person? Because there is another argument that I've heard that they embrace, maybe this is a sector of neurodiversity, but 
people embrace the word disability and it's not a stigma. And all it means is that the society as it is right now disables them from getting a job, from living their, their best life. And that's true. And there, there are a lot of very proud disability advocates and I salute them. I stand with them and I support them every step of the way. And as far as, as autism, though, it's just, it's a difference. It's not really a disability in that way. It's not in the same traditional sense. Now, I can see why people would view autism as a disability, but it's not a disability. It's a different ability. It's a different way of doing things, which has been overly pathologized over a period of years. So over time, whether that's doctors or social workers or, in air quotes, therapists, have all seemingly met in an underground cave or lair and have decided what is the right way to do things. And their way is their way. And if you're outside their way, then you're disabled. And it's it's not right. People have different methods of, of, of doing things. It's as simple as that. Like, I, I, I love food, okay? Right? Now, in Italy, they make pizza very different than they make it in New York. So with the New York pizza, is the New York pizza a disordered version of Italian pizza? Now, it depends what perspective you look at. Because in Italy, they will say, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that pizza is very much a disordered version of our pizza. Because... We invented it. We know everything about it. We've been making pizza here for thousands of years. And the the way it's done in New York is a completely wrong and disordered version of it. Where in in New York, they will disagree and say, well, no, this is our own brand of pizza that we've kind of come up with ourselves because a lot of pizza in Italy is square. And the round pizza is very much an American concept. Round pizza, square box. You know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, why isn't the box round? I mean, but that's an, that's another discussion. <laughs> and in um, in Rome and New York, two great great pizzas, and one's not a disordered version of the other, and one shouldn't be trying to fix the other because they both have their own unique way of being pizza. And I, I, people tend to work very well with analogies. I've had to learn to give analogies for very very basic things. <laughs> because whenever I put it bluntly, it comes across as, as rude and a lack of diplomacy. Uh, again, one person's diplomatic is, is another person's rude and direct. Mm. So uh, I, I always find polite and playful ways to explain things. Yeah, I appreciate that. So let's talk about your company, the Neurodiversity Training International, NTI. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the services you offer with regards to consultation and the the way that you work with companies that hire you? Well, what I do is I guide companies to enter the neurodiversity market space with maximum impact. And how we do that, and this can be for nonprofits or businesses as well, is to become self-sustainable through developing their own courses and their own content for the open market. First of all, I'll talk about nonprofits. So the traditional ways of fundraising prior to COVID cannot be used now. With the limits on social contact, with the limits on public places, the uh, gatherings, whether that's sponsored walks, bagpacking, shaking a cup in the center of your village or town, you can't do that anymore. And 
what I do is I work with ver- the, only the very ambitious nonprofits to create courses that they can sell in the open market or products or services and stuff like that. So that's that's two things I do, both for nonprofits and for businesses. As far as corporate training, my team and I, we deliver autistic-led training that focuses on our life experience. So we have been there, we have done it, and it just has so much more impact than traditional training because a lot of training that companies receive is normally provided by two, two types. Okay, The first type would be the professionals who give what their view of autism or neurodiversity is from the outside looking in. That's one strand. Or the second strand would be your very well-meaning volunteer from your local autism charity coming in and talking about the experiences she has at home with her children. And in my humble, honest opinion, saying one can understand being autistic because you live with someone that's autistic or you've studied autistic people for many, many years, to me is akin to saying, I understand what it's like to be blind because I can close my eyes. It's not the same. And the, the lived experience element and, you know, and even with Fortune 500 companies, people are, enth- uh, you know, enthralled by our stories. They love our stories, our advice and guidance that we give to really have maximum impact in the neurodiversity market space because the, the medicalized model is sinking and shrinking fast, uh, which is great, uh, which is something that, that I love. So moving over to the neurodiversity market space is probably going to be the best decision that you make as far as uh, strategic planning for your company. So uh, that's ultimately what I guide uh, companies and businesses to do, get into that market space with the most impact. So who would they offer their courses to? They can offer their courses to the public. So what would happen is I work with uh, companies to design courses because a lot of people would say, you know, we're just raising money. We're just fundraising. Let's take this from an example of a nonprofit. Okay. So with nonprofits, a lot of nonprofits simply have on their website, you know, give us money and what you'll get in return is, <clears throat> excuse me, the warm and fuzzy feeling of having supported us. That methodology isn't going to work anymore. People want something in exchange for their money that uh, they can use practically, whether that's a product, whether that's an app, or whether that is a, a course that has credits attached to it. So what what I always work with companies on, and I, I, I mean, I've asked this in corporate boardrooms where I, I've asked them whenever I've sat in the boardroom in person or virtually, I, I've asked them, well, before you, you figure out who you're going to sell your products, training and services to, what problem are you solving for people? And then the, the tumbleweeds just fly across the room. But, but people need to work out who they're serving, what gratification they want to give to their customer base. So I'll give an example from a charity I've just finished working with, where their niche was that they wanted to create a safer environment for autistic people within the travel industry. So they had a specific niche and we I worked with them to develop training for that specific niche. And now they're selling it, they're implementing it, and they're becoming the go-to people for uh, travel solutions and provisions. I mean, that that, that would be the, the Kimmel Solutions, uh, who are phenomenal, who I worked with to help develop their courses and their content. So it's kind of difficult. I, I mean, with me, it's a very personalized and individual experience because not many companies uh, have the same customer bases, revenue, team size, 
budgets, employees, and everything like that. So a, a lot of factors do come into play, but one thing that we certainly do to benefit, kind of no matter what size of company we work with, whether it's startup, nonprofit, or Fortune 500, is that we will design courses and learning and development for you to have maximum impact that aligns with your goals, with your strategic plans, and your revenue projections for whatever year it is, the first year, the second, or the third. So there, there really is a, a good scope for pretty much everything in between. Mm -hmm. And would you provide ongoing consultation afterwards? Because I'm also wondering if the people they're offering courses to would want to know, obviously, who provided the training for them to build out the course, if it was informed by autistic people, and also if they're receiving ongoing guidance. Because you know, there's a lot of training programs out there, as you were saying, by people who are not neurodivergent. And how are people really going to know the difference and which to choose? Well, I, I suppose it comes down to the brand of how things are branded, how things are marketed. And even with our own website, it's very clear that we are an autistic-led movement or a neurodivergent-led movement and that we will evolve our training and development programs over time. And we have an expansive network, whether that is through email or social media or various other mediums. I mean, we, we, we do have a lot of scope. We do have a lot of following and we do have a lot of kind of follow-up mechanisms in place, which we have done and we have built up. And I mean, I impart that knowledge on to other companies as well, because it's not a case of simply setting up a few training courses and then that's it. I mean, there's a lot of things, especially with nonprofits, because nonprofits are often founded by very well-meaning people who believe in a particular cause and there's no real entrepreneurial age. And that, that's what I bring is to say, well, you need to monetize this. You need to grow this and simply shaking the cup and hoping for the best, hoping money comes in is not a strategy that you can use anymore. Even with with businesses who were very dependent on social contact and other things are having to kind of change direction and, and do different things. But certainly mechanisms for ongoing learning and support are very, very important whenever it comes to training where you can actually interact with not only the facilitators, but other people within the, within the company. Mm -hmm. Right. You're also offering employment opportunities for neurodivergent people by working with you on your team. Yes, uh, we did. We actually had a huge recruitment drive lately. We were hiring uh, trainers. Now, of course, we can't specifically say that we're, we, we only want neurodivergent people because of employment laws. But uh, I was certainly put down as most desirable. And we did take on six new trainers, five neurodivergent, one not which uh, we, we are still a majority uh, led of neurodivergent people. So, and I mean, this is uh, not just simply the fact of neurodivergent people is that, I mean, we're talking teachers, uh, mental health practitioners, even company executives that have come on board to deliver the training and give their experience and from their own autistic lens and point of view. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So Jude, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to people who want to be allies within the neurodiversity movement? I think the, 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 the best advice I could give is to listen to autistic people, reach out, speak to autistic people, learn about their experiences 
And a lot of collective experiences do exist. There are a lot of uh, autistic-led groups, businesses, nonprofits out there who pretty much form the basis of the collective of neurodiversity thought. So I would say in order to be an effective ally is take the lead from the neurodivergent community as a whole and always make sure that what you're doing, all your advocacy, campaigning and everything else is underpinned and informed by the neurodivergent community. Always, always, always. A lot of people would say that uh, things are person-centered. And with with NTI, our core philosophy is, is that you know we want to move even a step beyond person-centered and go to person-led where they're leading the conversation of what is most comfortable, most suitable to them. And I think that in order to be a a good ally is that taking the lead from the neurodivergent people is always going to be the best advice I could give. All right. Well said. Okay, Jude, how can people learn more about you? Well, the the best place to go would be my website, www.neurodiversity-training.com. I have my own website as well, judemorrow.com, for things like speaking and stuff like that. And we are very active on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn particularly. I'm under Jude Morrow and Neurodiversity Training International. There's one page for each. So connect with me. I'm very active on social media. Uh, The NTI team uh, love engaging with people, getting involved in discussions. And as far as any advice, guidance, or uh, educational tools that we can provide, our door is always open. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. This has been a really informative episode. Thank and and thank you again for for having me uh, on the show. It's been it's been great. I love talking about it. It's my special interest, and I can do interviews like this morning, noon, and night forever. So thank you. So much. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What are your thoughts on the neurodiversity movement? Do you view autism as a difference, as a disability, or as some gray area in between? We'd love to hear your perspective on these topics over in our Global Autism community. Just a reminder, the Global Autism community is open to anyone related to autism. Whether you're a self-advocate wanting to share your story and educate others, a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice, or a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.